1: I was
2: drinking every day. I ended up in the hospital. I'm so close with my parents and I have such a good relationship with them. And there's not one thing I can point to in my childhood that's the reason why I'm an alcoholic. I had so much shame about that. I'm like, well, then what's wrong with me?
3: Welcome to Stand Up Speak Up, a Canadian-made podcast highlighting important social issues and giving a voice to remarkable people. Over the last few episodes, we've shared the stories of people who suffered from addiction and other problems in life and had obvious trauma that led them there. However, these things can happen to anyone. Our guest today is proof of that. Danielle McCarron is a recovery advocate working to shift the stigma of addiction. She's currently living in Korea, completing her Master of Science in Health Coaching and Applied Nutrition. She's also a speaker and works to inspire others to live an authentic life through workshops, retreats, and one on one coaching. It's hard to pinpoint any single reason for what happened to Danielle. There may not be a reason at all. Growing up, she had what appeared to be the perfect life a good home, good parents, good looks. She was smart. Nobody expected that Danielle would become an alcoholic, and at such a young age. If anything, it may have been pressure to keep up with the perfect life that led her to drink. Danielle had her first drink at the age of 14, and soon found herself partying every weekend. This may have been a little much, but not completely uncommon for teenagers. It was in her early university years when Danielle's drinking finally transitioned from normal student partying to being a real problem. It got to the point where, after being hospitalized for overconsumption, Danielle would purchase more alcohol on the way home after being released. Today we'll learn about her experience with alcoholism and recovery, and an important lesson, that you can't force an addict to stop, you have to wait for them to be ready. Coincidentally, Danielle and Carla, your host, went to the same high school in Ontario, but 20 years apart. This is where we'll start the story.
1: I mean, let's go back to high school. And if we can paint our high school, it is predominantly white, Christian, and very clean cut. And if you didn't do well in school, you're a real troublemaker. I mean, people didn't rebel to things that would ever involve criminal, cr- you know, the criminal system, right? So you're in, you're in high school, and tell us all the things that you were involved
2: in in high school. I was really active in the leadership program that my school had. And I mean, that in and of itself speaks to the privilege of the school. Like we would go to Muskoka for leadership camp with the grade nines. And it was a very prestigious program. And yeah, it was something I was super involved in and doing all the leadership activities. And it was something I was really drawn to. So I did that. I was on the hockey team, co-ed volleyball. I was captain of the hockey team in grade twelve. So we held a lot of events to raise money for the school sports teams, environment club, drama. Um, I played the double bass, so I was involved in the music aspect. I was involved in pretty much every area that you could have been, basically. What, what were your grades like? On My entrance into university was a 92. I think I finished high school with like an 85. Because once I got in, I was like, yeah, but great grades.
1: And you, you looked a part of a, of a perfect... Student, right? So, you know, for anybody to look at you, they'd say, Wow, she's got everything and more, and she has no idea of some of the stuff that goes on in the in the bigger world.
2: For sure. And all my friends were like my high school group of girlfriends, it probably still is some of the most beautiful group of women. They're all stunning and and successful. And but it's I mean, it's all appearances, right? It's all how things looked like eternally that's not what was going on at all
1: did you feel the pressure to continue to be the perfect daughter the perfect friend the perfect member of a community
2: definitely and I think I felt there was this shame in me and I and I don't know what it stems from and and I've accepted that I might not but that has always told me that I'm not good enough I'm not worthy and that if I don't keep up the facade everyone's gonna know and that everyone already kind of does know to some degree.
1: What I hear a lot, quite a bit, from people that are raised in a more privileged environment is called the imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. You feel that it's only a matter of time before people realize and they peel back the onion and they see you're not worthy of all the things you have. And, and it's very like stressful, which leads to rebelling and, and Doing things, try to cope. So you're you're in high school. You're partying with your friends,
2: and you guys go drinking.
1: And what happens?
2: My first drink was when I was 14, like summer, going into grade nine, and I had like one beer, and I chased it with Sprite because I hated it. Um, and I told my mom right away because I was like, "Oh, I drank last night, and I didn't really like it." But then it just it started. I like I felt like I was a part of something when I went partying, and and all week I'd be like looking forward to it. It I mean, it progressed definitely until the point that it was every weekend. But everyone around me, we were all partying every weekend. So we would, I don't know, fake IDs or get someone's sibling to grab alcohol for us and go to someone's house. Usually like there's a few people whose parents were pretty absent that we would always go to. And I mean, everyone would just get absolutely obliterated. And unfortunately for my year, a very good friend of mine he was involved in a drinking accident and he passed away when I was in grade 12. And that really shattered the whole like protection environment, I think, and, and led to a lot of confusion for people who lived in this really protected society where nothing bad happened. And we all thought we were invincible. We went on a school trip uh, to Boston and it was, it was a marketing competition. So, I mean, it's like, the smartest kids and um, high achievers that are there. And we like grabbed a bottle. It was one bottle of vodka between 12 of us or something ridiculous. Like I think none of us could have had more than like one or two shots and we got caught and they sent us to, we got kicked off of everything, which I do think contributed to a pretty bad spiral in grade 12. And uh, they sent us to Sunnybrook to see all the people who had been in drinking related accidents. And no one ever looked at the why. It was like, let's scare you out of drinking and partying. And I think the years ahead of us in school too, like surrounding our year, we're all pretty, they were all doing the same thing too. So I think the school just like saw it as, okay, it's like these privileged bratty kids who just like party and can do what they want. So let's just like scare them and use them as an example. How aware of this were your parents, do you think? In grade twelve, they definitely became aware of it. I actually had a teacher who cared like quite a lot about me. Call my mom and say that she was concerned about me, and um, I obviously like lied to my mom and was very like, no, 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 like she's nuts. It's there's nothing wrong. But yeah, my rebellion. I think once Taylor, Taylor died, and that kind of facade was shattered. I just didn't like care as much anymore. I knew that my grades were good enough to get into school. Um, I knew I was going down like a kind of scary path, but I always had this like, okay, well, you know what? I'm going to be fine because I'm like ambitious enough. I work hard enough. It's going to all just fall into place. And I mean, it did for a long time. (laughs) And I think um, once I went to university, it leveled out again a bit. Like, I mean, obviously found people who partied the same way I did, but my grades were good. I was doing okay. Um, And I think the change of scenery, my parents just were like, you need a change of scenery. Like it's just it's richview it's Etobicoke, it it's all of that and how how was that it was awesome i felt like the imposter syndrome i think did leave me pretty quickly i found people who just like people who still today are my best friends um who we we understood each other and and we definitely like had a common love of partying for sure and the friends that only are like our only relationship is based off of partying have soon quickly left me once I got sober, but, um, we, we partied. I joined the snowboard club, which was amazing. And we went to trauma every single weekend. Um, I, I had a boyfriend like pretty early on, um, for the first couple years and, and yeah, like everything was just going like university was the time of my life. I had the absolute best time, the best friends. We were so close, such a family. We did everything together. Um, and it wasn't really until I was in going into third year university and I started fainting all the time that like, I think things kind of took a turn for me. I, I was definitely drinking very often, um, but my anxiety started to really get out of control when I started fainting because every time I felt a little bit off, I thought I was going to faint. And then it turned out I had a heart condition. I had second degree heart blocks and I needed to have a pacemaker put in. I was 21 and having heart surgery and, and my anxiety really skyrocketed after that. And so did my drinking, I think, because I realized if I continued to drink and whenever I drank, my anxiety went away for a period of time. It didn't work, obviously, forever. But Dead. how are you <laughs> keeping these high grades up at
1: university, um, as well as having your heart condition, as well as drinking too
2: much? I think I'm really lucky. I mean, I it's kind of a bit of a scam. Like You learn how to read what you need to read to get by, and you, you learn what courses you need to take and uh, get help from people. And you, just, you kind of learn how to play the system a little bit. And and I did. And I think I was like so young still that my body's like, I mean, I'm hungover as all hell going to the library because I can still recover a little bit. I can still, my body can still handle it. Like, oh God, I could never do that now. I would never, I mean, I don't go to bed past midnight and I'm like dead now. But I think at like 19, 20, your body just can handle it more. When did you move from party drinking to...
1: Daily drinking?
2: When I was living in London. I went to London, England, which was like my dream. I always wanted to live in London.
1: Okay, so you're really like taking a leap?
2: Yeah. So I had I traveled pretty like in summers a lot and, and went to London and checked out a few schools the summer before and I got accepted to the one that I was really keen on, the City University of London. And I got there and definitely like partied right away and i think the summer going into law school was a pretty was pretty heavy partying happening as well like i think it sort of started in the summer and then once i was off in london it just took off uh the first semester was not as bad but i was starting to i was starting to feel really low i think i knew that i hated law like i just wasn't invested in it and and i was doing it for all the wrong reasons i was doing it because of the title and how it would look and wanting like a big Bay Street job in Toronto. I, I wasn't doing it for because I was passionate about it or because it like fed my soul. It was because I, it was all ego. And I think I started to realize that when I was there and was like, what have I got myself into? And yeah, I started becoming pretty depressed and yeah, I was drinking a lot. And then my anxiety was so bad when I was hung over. And that was when it I remember when it shifted and I realized if I just keep drinking, I don't feel hungover and I can kind of mitigate this. But then it would like the weekends would turn into weekdays and then there wasn't a lot of stopping it. And then I actually stopped going to class, started sleeping around the clock and just like drinking. And I think having access as well for me coming from Canada where, particularly Ontario, where alcohol is so regulated you can only go get liquor for a certain amount of time in the day and it's at the liquor store and for me I was in this building in London where there was a grocery store in my building that sold alcohol until like midnight and then I could just go to the convenience store across the street and grab it otherwise so it was so available it was just so easy and and it was just me and I mean I put my roommate through hell but I could pretend with like my family and the people who cared about me at home that things were okay and still they were like I mean I was still offered like summer articling position um or summer law student position at a firm in London like I was still doing really well at first and then and then come like March I would say end of February March it was really just getting out of hand I was drinking every day I ended up in the hospital In Ireland for St. Paddy's Day, I ended up in the hospital. I'd also been drinking for like two weeks straight before I went there. So by the time I got there, my body just completely shut down. Then, beginning of April, I was in the hospital again um, for drinking. Like my body just couldn't handle it anymore. And then, mid April, I don't remember, um, I was in a blackout. I took, I had this bottle of Oxy's because I had been hit by a bike a few weeks earlier and I hadn't taken any because I just really. I hated pills. They really made me feel sick. Like even if I had to take them from the doctor, I wouldn't. And I guess in a blackout I messaged everyone that I really cared about, my mom, my friends at home, and I said, like, you're gonna be better off without me and I took a bottle of pills and ended up in the hospital and was okay. But that's like that's where it led me. Like I was I was just so done with life. I, I didn't see any hope anymore. And the first thing I did when I left the hospital was go and grab a bottle of alcohol. Like that's where I was at. Like, How were you able to hide that from your parents? Well, at that point I couldn't, there was, there was no hiding it at that point for my parents. My mom had come to visit like a week before and she was really getting concerned. And I know really felt weird leaving and going home. Cause I was really like, I mean, I'd been up all night partying for my birthday, just like drinking all night with friends. And then continued the next day and went to see her and was just like an absolute wreck um I barely remember it and I know it's like haunts her seeing me like that um and then I went home for a few weeks to kind of like study for exams and and pull it together and and I did for the most part for those weeks so when I went back it was like okay and then when I got back to London it just it's that there's this blind spot when you're an alcoholic that tells you it's okay to have a first drink. Like, it's like, okay, it's going okay for a couple weeks. Like, it's fine. Okay, I have an exam tomorrow. Oh, my, like, roommate's having some wine with her friend. Like, yeah, I can have a glass. Like, I can celebrate. I've been studying hard, but only one glass. And it's like, how have I not learned to this point that I can't just have one glass? Like, I I don't know where that glass is going to lead me. Um, and that ended up, like, I wrote an exam in a blackout. Um, I... But like at that point, like the the gig was up, like everyone knew what was going on. And then actually after that point, um, I called my parents and was like, I need to come home. Like I can't do this anymore. And they actually came to England and, and packed me up and brought me home. But it wasn't really like I knew how bad it was. But it wasn't until I was in front of my parents and not being able to stop drinking with them around. Like hiding it, hiding it around the house, trying to like manage this unmanageable thing and then seeing the heartbreak in them because i, I hadn't been accountable to anyone until that point uh, and actually seeing what it was doing to them was was pretty crushing i had to take a look at myself at that point really
1: and well, what point did they say okay we need an intervention maybe we need to go to detox or rehab you know how were the discussions managed as a family at that at that time
2: so there was one day where um, my grandfather had fallen or fainted at the cottage and, um, we all went to the hospital um, the ambulance came, we all went to the hospital and like, I couldn't, I didn't know how long I was going to be the hospital for. So I needed to like grab some alcohol and put it in my bag. Like I, I couldn't function without it. And as we're at the hospital, I'm progressively going to the bathroom and getting more drunk. Like my mom's like, what's going on? And she's like, can I look in your bag? And like, I like, didn't even try and hide it. And she was like, what is happening? And I remember I went for a walk with my dad. And it was the first time that I had said like, like I have a problem with this. Like this is this is a problem. And and he cried and I cried. And um, we went home back to Toronto the next day. We were in Muskoka. Um back to Toronto the next day and I went to the doctor and he put me on antidepressants, anti anxiety medication, and told me I couldn't drink for a month. I was like, Okay, that's perfect. Like that'll give me time to kind of get grounded and my mom And I had decided at that point to go to Canyon Ranch, which is this like really like prestigious, yuppie, like wellness center in the Berkshires in Massachusetts. And we went there and I was really starting to feel like myself again. I was writing every day, going to yoga, meditation. It was great. And when I was there, I ended up in an AA meeting for the first time. And it was kind of phrased as like a, 12-step meditation on the on the pamphlet. So I didn't really know that it was like an AA meeting. I kind of thought I was going to like a meditation about like recovery or something thing. And when I was there, the woman who was speaking, she told her story and it just, it felt like my story exactly. She was from the same sort of background, um, same family life as me. And then, but it was like if my drinking continued for 10 more years where I would end up. And it really hit me hard. And she asked me if I wanted to have coffee with her. She was leaving in a couple of days, but if I wanted to have coffee while we were still at the ranch. And, and I did, and I ended up telling her so much and opening up to her. And I don't know, I felt really safe with her. Um, I told her things that I hadn't really told people. And yeah, and I, I started like reading 12-step literature. I started reading the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and went home and was feeling really good. And then my month was up of not drinking. And I was having a few friends up for Canada Day weekend. And like I was like, okay, well I'm good. Like I didn't drink for a month, so I'm obviously not an alcoholic because like alcoholics can do that. And I I had a couple beers, thinking it would be fine, and it was an absolute disaster. I I barely remember like almost a week. The memories I have are like my sister screaming, being like, "How can you do this to our family? Like can't you see what you're doing to my mom?" And my mom just like crying and. my my mom sleeping on the couch trying to not let me go near any alcohol and me like crawling on the floor behind the couch to try and get to the liquor cabinet and her coming into the room, just like grabbing booze out of my hand, like just absolute chaos. And then there was just this moment where I was looking in the mirror and it was like one of the most vivid moments of my life where I saw the person, like the physical person I was and didn't recognize myself at all and then somewhere in that mess of a person I saw this glimmer of hope okay I'm in there like I'm in this possessed person somewhere and I picked up the phone and I called the woman that I met at Canyon Ranch and just broke down and was like I'm an alcoholic she's like yeah I, <laughs> I know and asked her like okay like what do I do I, I can't live like this anymore. And then it was like, basically in that moment, mom on the phone with her, a neighbor who's, I've had known almost all my life, who's cottages down the road, who's was really the only open, sober woman I knew. And she's this like beautiful actress. And I just was always so drawn to her energy. Like I always found myself kind of like wanting to talk to her and so intrigued by her. Um, I knew she was sober and And I asked her if we could go for a walk and I needed help. And we walked for hours and I told her just everything. And she told me all of her stories. And it was the first time where I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I feel like that. I feel like that. I never thought anyone else in the world felt the way that I did. And we went to a 12-step meeting that day in in Muskoka. and And I picked up a desire chip at a meeting and I... That was July 4th, 2014, and I haven't had a drink since then.
0: Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Cundall, and everyone at my company, the SoundOff Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt@soundoff.network Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network.
3: Danielle was 24 at the time when she got sober. She's now 28 and next tells us more about life as a recovering alcoholic, the stigma around addiction, forgiving herself, and what she's doing now. And were there any items that came to mind relating
1: to Danielle's story? Well, I think a big one for Danielle's, and we do have design, that's just forgive yourself Because I think that people find it very hard, especially going through recovery, to forgive their actions during their addiction. And I know it's a part of the 12-step program. And so that's a shirt that has a lot of meaning for me because of all the guests we've interviewed that struggle with addiction. Another one is don't get drunk. And it's kind of our more um, edgy, funny ones. It's just like, don't get drunk, it's so obvious. (laughs) And so simple, but it makes a bigger statement like don't do not do something that could lead to something else that you're going to regret. We do have quite a few of recovery addiction designs and, and t-shirt statements in the store. And listening to her, those were the ones that kind of stuck out for me the most.
3: We'll have the links to those in the show notes, and you can always check out the store at StandUpSpeakUpApparel.com. We're back on Stand Up Speak Up with the story of Danielle McCarron. At 28 years old and having gone through therapy in a 12-step program, Danielle is now clean, taking things day by day, and living a fulfilling life.
1: I mean, from your parents, how did they explain... Your addiction to family members and to your siblings and to friends, or or did they did they not explain it? I mean, how was that handled?
2: Well, at first, my my immediate like my siblings and my sister is only a few years younger than me, and she's my best friend. And my brother knew what was going on. Like everyone, we we're a very tight knit family, so there was no there was complete transparency. And I think I think the difference with my addiction and recovery that's very different than a lot of people is like, I hit a fast bottom. You can honestly say that it was like, I was drinking daily for a few months and then I hit my bottom. Like, that's not normal. Like most people go for years like that. And I also didn't toy with recovery for years either. Like I wasn't in and out sober relapsing. Like I, I kind of got it and I stayed. So I think there was so much hope for my family too, that they were so proud of me and and that's one thing that i i love about my family more than anything is that they didn't have any shame about my recovery like they saw it as courageous and they saw like my battle with addiction as a struggle that people go through and and it was something that i was really honest about with people like i was like yeah i'm an alcoholic like i can't drink i think i was still like young enough that i didn't really know that I didn't realize how stigmatized it was, I guess, because I didn't really know many people who were alcoholics, or I didn't think. And it wasn't until I, like, my recovery progressed and I realized how many people were unwell that were ashamed of it and holding on to it because they were, they thought that it was this, like, moral dilemma. But it's not a moral decision. Like, you don't, no one wakes up and, like, chooses to be an addict and chooses that life. It's this, way of filling this hole in our souls that tells us that we're wrong and that we need to numb because there's so much pain and hurt there for whatever reason it is for someone you could be from a great background or not you can have childhood trauma or not but whatever it is is there's something in us that's telling us that we're we're wrong and if you see me you're not going to like me and then I'm not going to be able to connect with people and I need to connect with people. So like, where does that leave someone? So I was really open about it pretty early on. And I think that kind of helped my parents be open about it also. And they were pretty honest with family members. And And I do have an aunt who, who has since stayed sober. She's has stayed sober since I've been sober. And I went to visit her when she went to rehab and, and shared with her. And I think it's actually brought that side of my family together. My mom's side of our family we really feel like a unit more than we ever did because like we have this common peril sort of. And, um, and my dad's side, it's not really spoken about as much. Um, but not in a way that it's hidden. It's just not really like discussed as much.
1: And I don't think people know what to say. They're afraid of saying the wrong things. I think it's really a hard discussion for people because they don't know how to handle the conversation. and. and I also think that there's so many people with secret addictions that for sometimes sure. when somebody gets really quiet or doesn't want to hear the story or looks really uncomfortable, yeah, it could very well because they have an addiction or somebody close to them has a secret addiction.
2: Absolutely. That's one thing that I share. Um, when I'm working with new women, I share that piece of my story a lot because there was a lot of really close friends who have stuck by me through all of it. And I'm so, so grateful for them. There's a lot of friends who really just, they didn't know, they stopped inviting me to things. They didn't know how to be around me. And and I know that that's because they're insecure of their own habits. Like I'm forcing them to look at a part of them that they're not ready to look at. And that's totally fine. Like I'm here to be honest about my recovery because the amount of people that have come to me through me being honest, the amount of people in in Etobicoke and in this community where people aren't, necessarily honest about like their struggles um it's like it's honestly incredible how many people have said like i need help and and people who have got sober or people who haven't but they know that i'm there and they know when they need to reach out and talk like i'm there or they have a sibling or they have someone they're worried about in their life or they themselves are struggling and and i think my parents have been a huge part of that too because they've had the same experience like the amount of people Both my parents have said, have come up to them and been like, my kid's struggling. My sister's struggling. How do I, what do I do? And they shared their experience of having a daughter who struggled with addiction and and who is in active recovery. We sort of tackled this as a family and and it is my journey in recovery, but they were never, like I started going to AA meetings every day and, and it was like rides wherever I needed to go. Like I threw myself right in it and they've never been anything but so supportive and and helping me and and that's where like I'm also so lucky is that I could take the time to do that like I didn't have to worry financially do you ever get worried
1: because you're such an overachiever in everything in life that you've thrown yourself into being an overachiever with recovery i mean is that possible i mean is there and is there any negative side to that or is that just a total upside the fact that you're so passionate and overachieving your recovery. I mean, it's interesting because you had, you've almost overachieved on every milestone. Do you know what I mean? Like I figured out my rock bottom faster. I got on board with everything faster. Like, you know, I, I don't procrastinate.
2: Yeah. It's, I mean, it's true. And it's actually something, um, I've been working, I've worked a lot on balance and I think balance has been one of the hardest things for me to find in my life. And I think I've sort of found that in terms of now I have like this work, social life, recovery balance. But the reality is like my sobriety has to be at the forefront of everything. And so I'm, I'm so lucky that I am the person that's passionate about it. And I don't feel like I've been, I have this death sentence and my life is so like loom and gloom because I'm in recovery and I can't pick up a drink. Like I feel like my world opened up in such a different way. Like it's a very before and after sort of feeling where I was overachieving before because it was about external validation. I was overachieving because I was so worried that you wouldn't approve of me if I wasn't perfect and if I wasn't successful. And now it has nothing to do with that. It's because I'm genuinely like this feeds my soul and this Is something that I want to help as many people as I can with. And it's something that is so authentic because I'm in connection with who I really am that it doesn't come from an overachieving place. It comes from this really real, raw place um, where I'm able to be vulnerable and honest. And all I'm doing is like being me in it. And that's helping people. It's not about like success, it's not about anything else but like this day and staying sober in this day and helping someone else on their path as well.
1: You moved to Korea to do a teaching job and also get your master's um, in health coaching. Um, So currently you're living a non-traditional life and and you're pushing yourself out of your comfort zone to live simpler and to experience a new culture and to just... Continue to push yourself to be unique. I mean, you're an overachiever in what life experiences you select for yourself. (laughs) I mean, you could move to uh, Winnipeg or to Montreal,
2: but you're like, no, I'm going to Korea. It's true. I think it's that—that's who I am at my core, though. Like, that's—it's this like seeking and this this need to have experiences, and and I think the difference is now is it doesn't feel like it's for anybody else. Like, I don't feel like I'm. I'm not traveling because I need to like prove something, which like definitely was like an undercurrent before I'm traveling because it brings me into the present moment and all these experiences it is, it's been such a growth year for me. And I do, I want to be the best version of myself I can be and through growth and challenges. And there has been some major challenges this year, but all of that is helping me grow. And then when I get through those challenges, I'm able to help someone else through what I've been through. Like, it's, it's the next step of um, what's being placed in front of me will be a woman who comes to me who's struggling with something I just went through. And I don't think it's about having unique experiences. I think it's about having fulfilling experiences that aren't about other people's idea of what works for me and finding what really works for me. And, and yeah, like Korea was something that was on my radar. When I was in my undergrad, I knew a couple of people coming to teach in Korea, but I was so afraid of well, then I'm not going to be like on the trajectory I need to be on, so I can't do that, and then when this opportunity presented itself last year it it was too perfect like I'm doing my master's online, I got a job in Korea that like pays well, puts me up in an apartment, allows me to travel I've been to ten countries this year and and save and then come home with like these experiences and build this sort of business and I wrote a book and And way more in touch with myself, like having a year away from your comfort zone and your normal supports, uh, you get in touch with yourself and what you really need and and what I really need in life isn't going to look the same way as it does for other people. And I think that everybody, like if they're living an authentic life, wouldn't necessarily be living the life that they are. They would be open to other experiences and, and open to... Taking risks and challenges and things that might not necessarily look the same for other people or other people's idea of where you should be at in your life. Would you say that you forgive yourself? Can you say
1: confidently, I forgive myself for the choices I've made?
2: Absolutely. I wouldn't be alive if I didn't. Forgiveness is a huge part of recovery and and if I still held on to that. I'm not capable of holding on to holding on to resentments or holding on to a lack of compassion or forgiveness because it leads me back to feeling unwell. And that might not necessarily make me pick up a drink, but I might be I might fall into like procrastination or I might fall into perfectionism or I might fall into old behaviors that aren't really me. Like all that stuff is defenses, all that stuff is a projection of Who I want the world to see me as, and resentments and a lack of forgiveness keep me unwell and keep me focused on external stuff and just get in the way. What are all the things you would say right now that you forgive yourself for? I think the main thing that kind of encompasses everything is that I forgive myself for not seeing my worth, and I forgive myself for harming myself and harming the people I love. The way I did, and I forgive myself for not knowing better at the time. And now that I know better, I do better And like the recovery circle it's It's called a living amends and and that's all I can do every day is, is live every day authentically and honestly, and honesty is a big piece for me now. I have to be rigorously honest. and if I do that, like That's the best I can do in every day. And, and that has healed any sort of lack of forgiveness in myself because I'm doing what I can every day. Do you
1: feel your parents have forgiven themselves for not seeing it earlier? I mean, because there's a, there's a guilt. It's an unfounded guilt and it, and it shouldn't exist. I mean, it's not
2: anything to do with them, but that is hard. There's nothing they could have done. There's not one thing that they could have done until I was ready. And I think that they know that. And I think that they're just so proud of how far I've come and and that they know that I have this like kind of daily, like I have something that I'm going to live with for the rest of my life. An addict
1: has to be ready. You can't force an addict. I think that a lot of people feel like a personal failure that they can't help
2: their loved one with addiction. I was in a relationship for the last three years that like I've recently let go of with, with a man who has struggled with addiction also and who has relapsed several times. And and I've really delved into the family portion of, of recovery. And, and one of the big things that I've learned is like, you can't control it. You can't cure it. And you didn't cause it. Like it's not, it's not my responsibility. Um, and all I can do is be, a healthy example for people in my life and hope that they're attracted and want to change because of that. But I can't push it. I can't force it. I do think that everyone's bottoms look different. And I do also think that it is possible to raise that bottom. Like I do think that interventions can work. And I do think that... I think it's something that if we help people with their self-worth and connecting to who they really are early on in life we can help people from living in this sort of outer disconnected layer of themselves. That's not really them at all. And I think that's why I can forgive myself too. circling back to that in my addiction is like, I know that that wasn't really me. Like I know that that, that was the result of disconnecting from who I really was. Like, I always think if we could inject every human
1: with feeling of self worth of the world's problems could be, could be solved. For sure. So much stems from our own self-sabotage and our own
2: feelings of not being good enough. Definitely, definitely. I think that we could, um, it's like my absolute like wholehearted belief that addiction, suffering, pain, like everything we experience in the world is from a disconnect to who we really are. And that if we can help each other Be real and be authentic and and discover who that person really is, then the hate we feel towards each other, the fears that people live in, this sort of um, separation that we feel, um, I think it would disappear.
3: We'd like to thank Danielle for being courageous, sharing her story, and now using her life to help others. To learn more about Danielle or the services she offers, you can visit daniellemccarron.com. And we'll include that link in the show notes for this episode at StandUpSpeakUpBlog.com. Now, our show wrap-up with Carla. So we had a number of important takeaways here about how we can best help people in our own lives suffering from addiction. And also that this can happen to anybody. You know, most times when we've shared these stories, there are some very obvious reasons for why they went down the wrong road in life. Most times, no fault of their own. But in Danielle's case, I mean... She really had a great life growing up and it just happened.
1: I think that her story, unfortunately, is getting more and more, I don't want to use the word popular, but I think kids are pushed right now to perform and the perfectionism is just getting worse and worse. And they said currently right now, they have more kids in university that are dropping out due to mental health issues than they've ever had before.
3: Right. And uh, it was interesting kind of as this story progressed, because we heard uh, early on, I mean, it didn't sound too uncommon, you know, not uh, all teenagers start drinking alcohol, you know, before their, their legal age, of course, but... It happens. And so to hear that a teenager was starting to experiment with alcohol and parties in high school is not that uncommon, but it was kind of as her her life progressed and it finally made that transition from normal partying, even in university, to the point where she was drinking almost all the time. And then it was, okay, now we have a problem. It's not normal anymore.
1: But I feel like this is so more and more common. I mean, if you look at how many kids are on the Um, ADHD drugs, um, the Adderall drugs. I mean, the desire to perform, to be perfect in everything. I mean, I think it's actually just as stressful as a high-performing achiever to someone that struggles with a rough upbringing. I think they probably carry the same type of weight on their shoulders and anxiety and stress. Because I think kids like Danielle, and and there's so many like them, and I include even my son in this, they feel the weight of the world on their shoulders. And I think addiction, um, somebody that is a productive addict, um, a working addict, I think they're really good at hiding it. And I think people are really good at hiding a lot of things that give them shame. That's why people don't openly talk about being assaulted or molested. People with shame are so good at keeping it a secret
3: yeah and this is going to vary from person to person as well but i know you asked danielle about how she kept up her marks and you know some people are naturally uh better able at certain things than others and for her it didn't sound that hard she just said she kind of learned how to read just enough to do well and you know some people who are naturally smart it's not that hard. So for her, it, it didn't affect her as much as it may have affected someone else. She could keep up the marks fairly well for a while. And that was that much longer that she could go on with no one really realizing that there is anything, anything wrong.
1: You know, it's interesting. She's such a high achiever and everything. And I told her she's a high achieving addict as well. I mean, she just has gone this full force. I mean, she just doesn't do anything mediocre. And probably this whole experience of her, she's going to turn it around to a positive, a life lesson and help others. She just is one of those people you can tell that is just extremely competent and extremely intelligent. And so she's probably able to push through this faster because she had a great family, a supportive family. And she didn't go down the path of extreme drugs. I mean, she really kept it to alcohol.
3: And one thing that I was found interesting that you guys mentioned in this uh, was the fact that when you, you have say a friend or a family member who is an addict, you can't help them until they're ready, which I would believe as well, you know, that, that makes sense to me, but I do wonder what do you do in that case? You just let them continue down the, the road that they're going on. What, what, what do you think about that?
1: I think what's really hard is that the people around an addict go through the same the same like really depressing experience. Do, do you know what I mean? Like although they can't make the person quit, I feel like it drains these people that are around addicts. And I'm sure she took her parents to hell and back and her sister and people who really loved her, but she's right, she said you can't do anything until you want to change. And and I think in the meantime all you can do and say is that I will be there for you. I love you. I believe you're worth Fighting for, but I don't think you can mandate them to do things and take away alcohol from them. They'll find another way to get it. Take away drugs and then they'll find another way to get it. I mean, addiction is a disease. Once you're addicted to something, it's just not a matter of willpower. It's so beyond that. Your brain gets rewired. I mean, it's, I've never once ever met an addict that said, Oh, like, I love being an addict. It's a choice I made and I just um, want to keep being addicted. It's, it really becomes like a physical need to get alcohol or get drugs in your system
3: yeah and she explained it well with describing how the alcohol made her feel and exactly what issues she was treating with it and she said basically when i drink i don't feel like that anymore everything's fine and then when i get hung over if i drink more then that goes away so it's, so it's so easy to fall
1: into Yeah. So i thought this was kind of a different angle for addiction because we've done a lot of um, drug addiction stories and stories of deep addiction that take people into even the criminal justice system and onto the streets. And I think it's an important podcast episode for parents to share with their teens. I just think it's really important for parents to listen to this one and understand that you can't ever, ever like just think that it's not going to happen to you.
3: Exactly. It was a great uh, great eye-opener for that and also how to handle these situations if you do have someone in your life like that that's struggling so yep it's a great episode and we thank danielle for sharing her story and we have all of her information in our show notes for her website and what she's up to now so you can reach out to her
2: the stand-up speak-up podcast is made in canada produced and hosted by carla stevens tolstoy co-production editing and narration by joel at east coast radio creative Copyright 2018. Find us online at standupspeakupapparel.com. If you have a moment, please leave us a 5-star rating and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to Stand Up Speak Up.
0: I'm Matt Kundel, host of the Sound Off podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast.